Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank for the opportunity we have to come and worship you and look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead as we study and, and see what you'd want us to see from these verses. In your son's name, amen. amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 8. And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. And you shall write them upon the post of your house and upon your gates, and it shall be when the Lord your God shall have brought you into the land which he swore unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you great and goodly cities which you build not, and houses full of all good things which you filled not, and wells dug which you dug not, vineyards and olive trees which you planted not. When you shall have eaten and be full, then beware lest you forget the Lord which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So we're going to stop there for a moment. And uh, we're talking about God's words and commandments at the start. And at verse 7, which we talked about last week, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you shall sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And then he goes on to say, and you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the post of your house and on your gates. So we look at this, and the Jews literally have taken this statement of you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets before your eyes. And they actually, on the Sabbath, will wear boxes with scriptures in them uh, called phylacteries on the forehead or just a box strapped to their wrist with the, with, the, with the scripture in it. And instead of looking at it and saying God wanted them to think about and know these things, they go, well, we're just going to literally pop them in front of our hip face and, and hands and not, you know, not necessarily even think about it. It was just uh, something they did. And if you recall Jesus saying, you make your phylacteries wide, and they, and they had this idea that the bigger they were, <laughs> the more spiritual they were. Uh, I've got more verses in mind than you have in yours, and it sticks out way out on the side, and you get a great big box stick to your wrist, and, and it was the whole idea, not that you were paying any attention to God's word, but you're just making a show of your righteousness. And we look at this, and, and it really was that God wanted them to tie together and, and be in league with love, is what it says, and be a sign on their forehead, you know, just standard that they would pay attention to his word and that his word would be in our spirit. You know, we, we look at it that we are to meditate on God's word. We're to think about God's word. And then he went on, write them on the post of your house and on your gate so that when you entered into your house, you saw these scriptures, these commandments, these rules. And I love it when I go to people's houses and they've got Bible verses all over their <laughs> all over their house on walls and everything and it just says okay we're paying attention now the flip side of it is you see them so often you start to not pay attention to them but the idea that you want to put god's word in front of you and this is why i share with people we really need to start our day with reading god's word and meditating on his word throughout the day and this is be totally fulfilling this verse the way it the way it's written is Think about his word. What does he say? How does, it, how does it affect us? And it should be affecting us. We should be getting a biblical worldview as we study his scripture and start seeing things from God's perspective rather than the world's perspective. And we've shared little things. You know, How many times when somebody's been married for a long time does people say, oh, wow, you've been married a really long time because they're looking pretty much at the world standard. Uh, you know, anything, anything over two, two to five years, and you've been married a long time by the world standard. And I look at it, I'm going, okay, I'm, I'm judging by God's standard. And I look around at the people being married 30, uh, 40, 50, 60 years and say, that's the standard I want to say. You know, when you, get, when you hit 60 or 70 years married, you've been married quite a while as far as we can say in our, in our, in our time frame. And so how do we look at things? Talking to a gentleman just the other day, it's kind of funny, we've been talking about creationism and evolution, and, and he believed in a gap theory. He's a Christian and believes that there's this big gap where all the dinosaurs and everything were popped in. I'm going, well, go, I understand how you can want to believe that, but how do you put death before Adam? Death came from the sin of Adam and Eve. You can't have death before that. 
And he's going, oh, never thought about that. <laughs> so, but we think about this and we've got to start agreeing with the scriptures. And in no matter what, even if it's something that doesn't make sense to me, I need to look at the scripture and say, the scriptures are right. I do not believe that God said literally to tie, tie these things in front of our eyes. I think he was putting, so basically put them in front of your mind by meditation and, mm -hmm. and consideration. Now on the gates and stuff, probably. I think he wanted us to be reminded as we went in and out. Uh, and they've got boxes on their gates. Many of the Orthodox Jews have boxes on. But see, they put a box on their gate. They don't even, they don't even show the verse. It's just a box with the verses in them. And they do sing right by their front door. There's a box with the scripture in them. So it's not even, you know, a scripture like you'd see in a Christian home. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, and, you know, that says, right, there's a verse. Okay, it's saying this is who I am. But with the Jews, they put it in a box. You know, you don't, you don't read it. It's just God's word sitting on a, in a box, hidden, hidden in a box. And how many people do we have that say they're Christians that hide God in their hide God and don't share him with them and that's kind of what they're doing by putting this word in a box it's like okay we've got we've got it God you're there you know nobody can see you nobody knows what it is but you're there so no I don't believe that God is wanting us literally to put it in there he wants it on our foreheads he wants us to be meditating on his word he wants it on our on our hand because he wants everything we do to be for him and I think that this is more a a symbolic thing than it was to just strap these things on your wrist and arm, uh, forehead and say look how spiritual I am I've got a I've got a five by five box on my wrist uh, so no I, I am the, I am the school of thought that this is one where he's saying in your mind in your work put me first sense. yeah it, it doesn't make much sense you know but he does tie it with the, uh, write them on the post of your house and your doors of your house and again that could be in as you go in and out he's wanting you to be him to be the center so but I mean if you want to pry it on there but if you're going to do that I would put a verse on there that I could read not a box with a verse in it that I can't read uh, because that's what he said to do he didn't say anything about putting a box on your forehead or a box on your wrist he said put my commandments, my statutes, my, my, my uh, ordinances on, in, on your forehead. And so I really believe that he's saying, think about them, you know, know what he wants, not just put the Ten Commandments in a box and put it on your forehead. So, um, and make it, make, it, make it what you think, make it how you work, that he's the center of all your work. As you go into your house, you think about this house belongs to God. As you come out of the house, you think I'm going into the mission mission field to present God to people. So that is how I've taken it. Uh, the Jews have taken it literally to to do to just create a box and stick the the Bible in it. Or the word the words in it. They don't even put the whole Bible, they just put verses in those boxes. So and then it says, and it shall be when the Lord your God shall have brought you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and give you a good, great and goodly cities which you have built not. And I love this, and it shall be when, not if you come into your land, but when you come into your land. Moses is using language that this is going to happen. It's, there's no option. You are going into this good land. And God does this a lot of times with us. He speaks as if things are already done because in his mind, they're already done. When, and we've talked about this. When Jesus said to the Father, I will sacrifice myself, as far as the Father was concerned, Jesus was the sacrificed lamb, even though he hadn't even created the world yet. Jesus was the cru 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 uh, crucified, sacrificed lamb because he said he would do it. And God knows exactly what's going to happen, and he speaks so often, and, and it says uh, in the scriptures that he speaks as as if things have already happened because he knows they will and this is one of those things that really people dry you know have a hard time with how can God know the future so clearly and we've talked about it he knows the future because he's above it he's already he's already in what is our future but he's already he already sees it he already knows 
the decisions we're going to, meet, to make and what's going to happen because of those decisions. And so he is already there and he says, I already know. <laughs> I already know this is what's going to happen. at least in this particular realm. Uh, because Revelation tells us that the tree of the knowledge of, uh, the tree of life that is in the midst of this tree of the river of life bears fruits, 12 fruits each in its season. And that's in a, what we would consider a timeless rain, uh, rain. So there is some form of time in heaven, but it wouldn't be the same as our time. Yeah. Because we deal with hours and seconds and minutes and, and days and who knows what heaven's time is. Uh, but the tree, of the, the tree of life has fruit. And this is in that timeless realm. So there's some form of time. Now, is it the same time we have? I doubt it. Uh, it's some other time in some other dimension. Yeah. And the good news for us is God's above that. So for him, he's... he's Seeing that time from its beginning and end, you know. And we, I use the word time even though it really is a misnomer because it's not what we would call time. So uh, whatever time is in whatever dimension the tree, the tree of life is in would be that, that framework. And uh, because I was, when God showed me that when I was studying the book of Revelation, I'm going, this tree produces fruit in, it, in its months, 12 different fruits. So there's still some kind of 12-month cycle, but it's in heaven. And I'm going, this doesn't make sense because I've always, I've always been taught there is no time in heaven. And I'm going, okay, well, there seems to be some kind of time in heaven. The tree of life is producing fruit in its months. And uh, so it's kind of an interesting thought. What does it mean? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, means there's some kind of time in heaven, just not what we're used to. So... But it says, when you enter that land that has been promised to you. When was it promised? It was promised to Abraham. Abraham was told, wherever your foot touches, it's yours. And we think about that. He started at, in Ur of Chaldees, went west along the Euphrates River, on the north side of the Euphrates River. Then he came down... Uh, from, uh, yeah, where his brother Hanan lived uh, anyway. Then he came down in a little strip of place and then he wandered all around the promised land. And it's kind of funny when you look at a map of what David owned when, when he was king, all of the promised land, this little strip up to the Euphrates and down the length of the Euphrates, which is what God said would be theirs. And that's his promise that Israel owns everything from the Mediterranean all the way over to the Euphrates River because that's where Abraham wandered. And that is the land that Israel is supposed to have. Which is kind of funny when we listen to them, you know, listen to all the Arab nations saying Israel's stealing our land and all this other stuff and they don't have the land that has been given to them. And a matter of fact, they have very small section of the only signed treaty that belongs to Israel. And uh, they have the, the 48 Accord, which was not the, it was never signed by anybody. And there's a land, that, the treaty before that, that gave them all the way to the Mediterranean that they don't, that, that was approved by everybody and all the countries signed it, but they don't have the only signed treaties land. Uh, if they were to go to court, they could basically take the rest of the land if they wanted to. But in, in yeah, but God has given them this, this land, and even when they went into the, in their 48 land, they bought the land rather than just take it because it was all swamp land at the time. And the Jew, the Arabs were you know, rubbing their hands. You know, we, boy, we, we took the best of them. They bought all this worthless swamp land at a high price, and then they drained the swamps and turned them into the most beautiful farming land there is in that area. And now everybody wants the land that, they'd, <laughs> that they've converted. So, but most of it's converted because of God's blessing in the first place. Without God's blessing, it would have been just, it still would be worthless swampland. So, we look at this, huh? Literally, it was swamp at the time. Yeah. Uh, during the Ottoman Empire, the, 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 the king of the Ottoman Empire decided he was going to tax trees. 
So what the Arabs did was chop down all the trees, which turned it into desert, which then once it turned into desert, the waters wouldn't run and it waters backed up and turned the desert into swamp. What years was that? Oh, the 1400s, 13, 1400s during the Ottoman Empire. You know, so then Israel bought the land, opened up the water, opened up the the drainage, drained the land and planted all the crops that they do and and changed it to a garden that it is today. It's kind of funny because they've, they've violated everything that God said and God let the land be cursed and then when Israel gets it and they start fixing it up, he blesses the land. And this is so important because God said that he was going to bless them. And he would bless anybody who cared for them. So the promised land was a land that God gave him, and his description of it, it's a land with good and great cities. And he says, you're getting a bunch of cities that you didn't build. And you've got to think about how much of a benefit that was to be getting cities that were already built. They were to kill the inhabitants, and they took those cities. And that meant there were walls around the cities, there were buildings, there was places for commerce, and this was quite a deal. Uh, the cities did not get built overnight. We see that in the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. It took them almost 49 years to rebuild the city, the temple, and the wall of Jerusalem. And that was a, a, quite a while to rebuild all of this. And here they were being sent into a land, and God says, you're going to get to keep the cities. They're not going to be destroyed. And he goes, and you get to have houses that are full of things. All right. Every time they would kill these people, they got their houses and everything that was in their houses, all the furniture and the, the pantries and the stores of, you know, whatever clothes there were and animals. And, you know, we think about this. They got very rich just by coming in and conquering this land. They got things that were full. Now, oftentimes they were told they had to kill the animals and all the people, but that still left you with all the stuff. And this was the, when you went to war back in this time, and all the way through Daniel, uh, David and, and Solomon's age, when you went to war, part of your pay was that you got the spoils from the enemy. And that meant you got to strip the bodies of any valuables they had, any gems, any, any armor, any weapons. If you were near their cities, you got whatever was in their houses and became yours. And if that meant that they had... Uh, animals or family that became possession of the victors and we see this over and over and God's saying you're going to get all this stuff you've got houses you, you've got cities you didn't build you're going to have houses full of stuff and he's going to say you're going to have wells that you didn't dig and for anybody who's ever lived any place where you don't have water we know the value you know the value of, of a well especially when you have to dig them and not find water a couple of times you know and you get tired of digging and then you finally find your water so he says, you're here in the middle of this dry and arid area and you're going to have wells that you didn't dig. You're going to have vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And you get. And this is another thing. It takes years to get an olive tree up to a place where it can produce olives enough to take a harvest. And the same thing with vineyards. You, know, you don't plant the grapes and then harvest that same year. Matter of fact, you don't get to harvest the second year. It's the third, fourth, fifth year before you can even start to take a harvest that's worth anything out of your vineyards, which is why if you go to Napa Valley, you see these vineyards all the time. They just cut them back and, and let them grow and cut them back. And after a certain number of years, when they no longer produce, they cut them all the way down. But they know when that happens that they don't have a crop on that, on that particular field for a, for a few years. Well, any place that has grapes is like that. I just think, I think of Napa Valley because that's where I've seen grapes growing. So he says, you're going to get all of this, literally, wealth overnight. Because we've been wandering around for 40 years, and now overnight, basically, you're going to have great wealth. And this is what they're preparing for. And then he says, then, okay, and th then is a very important word. Then beware lest you forget the Lord which brought you out forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. How often do we as Christians, when we get blessed, 
start to forget God. And it happens easily enough when you, when you have to depend on God for everything and you, and you know that you can't do anything without him. Sometimes small churches will do this when they're first starting. Everything is dependent upon God. You can't do anything and then you start growing and, and people start volunteering and all of a sudden you've got all this talent and, and now it's not so much that you need God, you know, even though you do, but you see this talent pool developed. Uh, you, get to, you have people who can design the flyers. You no longer have to go try your best to do it or go, go someplace else to get it. You have people who are teaching and, and, and good teachers. You have all these different positions that are filled because of how big you get and you start getting, and sometimes you get to the point where you stop depending on God. And that's when we get in trouble. <laughs> And say, well, God, we've got this. We've got the talent to do it. We've got the people. We can, we can do this. And it doesn't really start that way. But you just slowly start getting dependent on the blessings that you have. People who start getting a little bit of money and, and wealth, you know, they remember tithing to God all the time and being faithful to God and him meeting the needs. And, and then all of a sudden they start getting a little extra money and they start buying the toys and they don't end up using the toys and not going to church and, and wasting money and then going, well, to God, I don't have enough money to tithe anymore because I'm paying all the insurance and all my toys and, and you know, God, I've got to use them. So it means I've got to go take these trips. And, and we, we come up with all kinds of good excuses for not serving God. And here he's saying, beware. Beware. And Moses is telling his people, beware. He already knows what they're what they're used to doing every time they turn around they've griped and complained and and murmured against god and he, now he's saying okay you murmured against him during the hard times what are you going to do when everything is handed to you on a silver platter and you've got your great blessings beware because you were in captivity and i think he's given a very sh very quiet soft warning that if you turn away from god when you get prospered you'll be returned to bondage and we see that that does happen to them some 800 years later. They get conquered and go to go into bondage into Assyria and, to, and into Babylon. And then they come back after 70 years. And after another, another 500 years, they go back into captivity when they're, when they're no longer serving God and rebel against Rome when God says, just stay. And then they get dispersed. And then they don't come back again until 1948. And then they're going to have turned to the Antichrist and be won back over to God. And then they'll be, the Jews will be the primary force in the millennial kingdom, even though it'll be some Gentiles. And, but the Jews will be the primary residents of the millennial kingdom because they're the ones that are not going to take the mark of the beast for the most part because they've got the 144 witnesses and the, uh, and the two prophets outside the temple so they're getting this message and they're going to recognize the antichrist for who he was somewhere when he steps in and says i'm god and all of a sudden they realize that they've been lied to so they'll be the primary group that doesn't take the mark there'll probably be a handful of gentiles that don't because they've heard the messages from their churches over the years or maybe listened to a message online or on a tape or a cd and but he this, in this, Moses is saying, beware, because you came from bondage. And you might just find your way back to bondage. <laughs> Verse 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall swear by his name. You shall not go after other gods and the gods of the people which are around about you. For the God, Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So here it is, he's going in more of the warning. He says, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and swear by none other. And that literally means to bow down, worship, and, and draw curses by, other, by any other name. And he says, you're to fear God. You're to reverence him. You're to be in awe of him. He is, he is so much superior. You're to give him the reverence he deserves and serve him. This is the important step. And even to this day with the Jews back in Israel, not very many of them actually serve him. They're back in their land, but many of them are agnostic and atheist. They, they're just not serving God. And he, God is saying, 
you're to serve. Serve me. When you get into your new land, serve me. Because he knows that they're going to be tempted to serve other gods just as they did at Mount Sinai when Moses went up onto the, mount, onto the mountain to go get the law. And he came down and they were worshiping a golden calf. Why? Because they said, this man Moses has been gone for too long and we don't know what happened. Give us a God that can serve us, that we can serve. And Aaron threw the, threw the gold in a mold and out came a, a calf. And he says, you know, I told, tried to tell Moses, we, I just threw the gold in the fire and this, this uh, uh, golden calf miraculously came out of the fire. And, but this is their tendency. This is their way of doing things. When Balaam went to Balak and said, if you want to hurt these people, send, your, send the girls in and, and, mis- and bring the men in to serve your gods and their God will judge them. And God killed thousands of them for that, for that idolatry worship. But Moses knows their tendency. He knows that their tendency is to not worship God. And he's warning them. I mean, it's, you look at all this. Moses is telling the people exactly what they're going to do. And they still don't listen. Later on, he's going to tell them, when you get tired of God and you want a king... This is what the king's going to do. And we're going to hear Samuel tell them the same thing later on when they demand a king. But Moses had already told them, gave them the rules for when they wanted a king. This is what, what the king's going to do. And this is what the king needs, needs to do to serve you. Because God had already told them, there's going to be a time when they're going to turn away from me. It's, nat- it's our natural tendency of our sinful life to reject God and turn away from him and not serve him. It is only because we are filled with the Spirit and we're in God's Word and we're letting Him renew our mind and we're choosing to serve Him that we will serve Him. And it takes a conscious choice. It takes a purpose to get in His Word. It takes a purpose to change the way we think into a biblical way of thinking. And as we study the Word of God and we start getting a biblical way of thinking, we start understanding that we no longer feel comfortable in this world. We don't feel comfortable with the same people we used to feel comfortable with because we don't think like they do. Mm-hmm. Okay? We, don't, you know, we may have liked to drink at the parties and then we start getting this mindset that I don't, God doesn't want me to be drunk and the next thing you know, we're, if, we get in, if we get invited to the party, we're not drinking and everybody thinks we're square and thinking that we're better than them and then they stop inviting you to the parties because they feel bad. But as we start thinking differently our whole mindset starts thinking differently and we start looking at things and saying, I see things more from God's perspective. And when we start seeing it from God's perspective, it's easier to serve him. It's easier to do what he wants because we're already very much in his camp. Then the sorrowful thing is, is if we stop reading the word, we stop going to church, we stop, how quick our biblical frame of reference can be changed into a world's frame of reference again so easy for it to happen and I've seen it numbers of times where somebody looks like they're on fire for God what we call totally backslide and I start wondering was that person ever saved or were they just just excited about God were they just excited maybe for years even every once in a while you see somebody that gets really excited for God they go to Bible school they become a pastor and they're on fire they they look like they're doing good they gave good biblical messages and then next thing you know they're fallen and agnostic or atheist and saying I never really believe the stuff anyway how easy it is for us to drop back now if we are a new creation in Christ and you start backsliding you get convicted and you still don't have any fun in your backsliding because you're so convicted because you know you don't belong where you're where you're trying to be they know you don't, your friends know you don't belong, and the Christians right now you don't belong because you're in a backslidden condition and you're miserable. Because God is saying, you're mine, I can't let you go back. And then you turn back and return to God. And this is why we, the scriptures tell you, train up a child in the ways they should go, and when they are old, they will not stay away. Because if they become truly saved and you fill their mind with God's word, they're not comfortable in that sinful lifestyle. They just aren't. They may pretend they are for a while, but they end up returning. Mm-hmm. And you watch it. They, 
It's not a guarantee that they're going to return, but most of them, if they made a decision for God and you've raised them upright, they'll return. Now, if they never made a decision and they don't have anything to return to, they were just showing you what you wanted to see. But here he's saying, fear God, serve him, and don't go after other gods. And then if that wasn't clear enough, or of the gods of the people that are around about you. Okay, and he already knows that that's what they have a tendency to do. Moses knows the people that he's been leading. He knows how much they've griped. He knows how much their, their parents griped and complained. But he also has watched them. Balak is this generation that he's dealing with right now dealt with Balaam and Balak. This generation had, had their turning to Baal already. They didn't turn to a golden calf. They turned to the gods of the Canaanites. They have already done the same thing their parents did, just with a different God. And Moses is saying, basically, you're just like your parents, get serving God and, and don't serve these other gods. For the Lord your God is a jealous among you, lest the anger of God, the Lord your God be kindled against you and you destroy you from off the face of the earth. God is jealous. And this word for jealous literally means that he will not allow a rival for affection okay this isn't the negative jealousy of you've got friends out there and I don't want you to be around your these other friends this is that jealousy of this person is trying to steal your affections and that is what true jealousy is about that's when a husband or wife should get jealous when they see somebody trying to draw the affections of their their spouse to them and that's a dangerous place to be, and it can happen so simply. Most people don't run off and say, well, I think I'm going to go have an affair today. Now, there are some people who have done that, but that's not the average person. The average person goes out, and they get a little bit of attention from somebody, and it feels good, and, and they get drawn to them, and then they get stupid and, and start spending a lot of time with them and sharing things that they shouldn't be sharing, and the next thing you know, it, it goes way too far and turns into a sexual encounter instead of the friendship that it started out to be. This is one thing about, especially friendships with the opposite sex, they're very hard for them to stay platonic because it just isn't the way we're designed to in those realities. Is it impossible? I don't know that it's impossible, but it is extremely difficult <laughs> to have that happen. But then Moses goes on to say, lest the anger of the Lord kindle against you and he destroys you from the face of the earth now the one thing we know on this Moses had already had God tell him I'm going to destroy them all and I'm just going to start over with you he told Abraham that his descendants would be the number of the stars and the number of the sands of the we know that God's not going to destroy his people completely that does not mean he hasn't disciplined them and killed many of them in the process Many of them were killed when they were taken into captivity. Many of them were killed when they went into the diaspora in, in the Roman days because of their rebellion. But Moses is saying, don't anger God so much that he will start all over. And it wouldn't be hard for God to start over. All he needs to do is find a small number of people that are worshiping him. When in Elijah's day, when he complained that he was the only one worshiping God, said, no, I've got 5,000 who haven't bent their knees. And I'll go do what I told you to do, and I'll worry about keeping my people. And this is what God always has a remnant. No matter what he has, he has a remnant of people that are going to serve him. There's a remnant of Jews that still follow him because of, the, because of their love for him, not just because of ceremonial. He has Christians, and there's always been a remnant. Even during the great Roman uh, inquisitions, during the the... Catholic inquisitions trying to destroy, destroy the church. God always had a remnant of followers that believed the word and followed him. And so it's always been that way. And he's always going to have a remnant. He will not allow his name to be erased from the world. And he uses people to lift it up. But God will always have that remnant of people following him. So we don't ever have to worry about everybody being wiped out. Matter of fact, sometimes when, when people are martyred, you end up getting that, they get martyred and more people come to them because they see that God is faithful and that there's something worth dying for. Many people are looking for, is there something really worth dying for that is, that is out there? 
This is the lie of Satan out there is to say that by doing something good in your death, you'll please the deity and move forward. Satan is always about death. God is always about life. And this is where he is. He loves us and he gives us life. He loves us, he gives us life. And Satan is always about death. Kill, you know, kill yourselves, kill others, kill anybody who's different than you, kill the baby. You know. He hates humanity, so his whole goal is kill as much humans as possible so that, so that they can all go to hell and he can hurt, hurt God, the Father who, and Creator. That's all he's trying to do with all of this. Here he says in verse 16, And you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Masa. So we want to think about, number one, what is Masa? Where was Masa? And we're going to turn real quick to the, uh, Exodus 17 and look at what they did in Masa. Starting at verse 2. Yeah, let's start at 1. All the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin in their journey according to the commandment of the Lord, and they pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. And this was a common refrain when in, in, for them, especially in Exodus. There, wherefore, the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we, we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why chide you with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And this was what they always did to Moses. They attacked Moses. And Moses' answer was the same thing. We're following this cloud and this, uh, pil this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. Who am, who am I for you to be angry with me? I'm not the one leading you. God's leading you. And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is, is this that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do to these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you the elders of, the, of Israel and your rod, wherewith you smote the river. Take it in your hand and go. Before, behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Hebrob, Horeb, and you shall smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of the Israel. And, the, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because, the children of, because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is, is the Lord among us or not? And this was one of those first times when they came in. And remember, they... As soon as they crossed the, the Red Sea, they went through the Red Sea. They watched God open it up with walls on both sides of it. A couple hundred feet, feet probably in the, where we think they crossed. And the very first thing they did within two days was cry and murmur to God because there was no, no water. A couple days later, they're griping and complaining because the water wasn't really sweet. So they had to put the, if you remember, the, the, the Moses took and he threw the tree in it, it says which we talked about being the picture of the cross being thrown into the bitterness of our, of our situation and bringing peace. And then they come and they don't have water and Moses strikes the rock. And, and it literally says rivers of water gushed out of the rock. And we're talking about a miracle here that the rock brought forth that, that kind of water. And then later on, Moses is going to, God is going to say, speak to the rock this time and Moses strikes the rock. And because of that striking of the rock, Moses is told, you're not going to enter into the promised land. Why? Because Jesus is the rock, and out of him flows living water. And he was only struck one time, and that was the Masa. And the other one was he was supposed to speak to it. And Jesus said, if you ask, you will have living water. And out flowed the living water. So, but the people were murmuring against Moses. And they were murmuring against Moses, but Moses understood they were also murmuring against God. Because he knew he was nobody and God was the one that was their true leader. But oftentimes this happens even in churches where people, the pastor will take a step of faith and lead a church into some big ministry for God and be right, you know, have a good plan. And as soon as the hard things happen and you're guaranteed to run into obstacles when you step out for God, and then people murmur against God saying, well, and what, what, who, who, who does he think he is taking us in this step of faith, you know, and, and making, doing this, that, or the other thing, and they start murmuring. 
and God takes away blessing when that happens and brings judgment. And he says, don't do this. You already did it. He says, verse 17, and you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded and you shall do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. And when we get to Joshua it's so interesting to watch how God drives the people out. As they go into battle, they win battles. They, they beat the city of Jericho, the, the city that is unconquerable as far as they're concerned. Walls so thick you can ride the chariot around it you know, and protect it. And they don't have big, big dynamite and guns and artillery to knock this wall down. And God says, I'll do, I'm, I'm, your, I'm your victor. I'm your, I'm your weapon. I'm going to make it easy for you. And he kept doing this over and over. They kept winning battles they weren't supposed to win. They fought giants and won the battles against these giants. And God says, I'm your victory. I'm your defense. And he is our defense. He is our victory. When we hide in him, he goes out and does the battles. All we do is step forward and say, God, I'm going to go ahead and step forward. You say we're moving forward, we're going to step out. And watch God give the victory. Over and over, he gives the victory when we step out by faith. And he's telling the people, you're going, to be, you're going to be victorious. When you get there, you're going to be victorious. And then I love verse 20. And when your son asks you in the time to come, saying, What mean these testimonies and statutes and judgments which the Lord our God has commanded? Then you shall say unto your son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all of his household in our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in and give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is in this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded. When we as families honor God, fathers and mothers, especially fathers, because that's who God says to teach. He te tells the fathers to teach. When we are teaching our children, when we are living a godly lifestyle, when we are putting God first, our children will ask why. What's important? Why do you do these things? And this was done all the way through. He said that the same thing. When you participate in the Passover and your children ask why, this is what you tell them. When they crossed the Jordan, they were to take 12 stones and make a stack of them just outside Jericho so that when you went and had your picnic by the river and they saw that big stack of stones and the children go, what's that stack of stones there? We know it's not natural. It's man-made. Oh, let us tell you about what our God did as we crossed the river of Jordan on dry land. Well, let's tell you what God did to Pharaoh and, his, and, the, and Egypt by delivering us out with the plagues on Egypt that destroyed Egypt. Let us tell you about the stories of Joseph, how he delivered the, and rescued our people. Let us tell you the stories of David as he fought Goliath and won the battle because as a little boy. Let's tell you about the stories of Joshua fighting in these battles and Caleb fighting saying that he wanted the hardest land to conquer because he trusted God to fight the battles. All these stories, and God says, share them with your children. Share them with each other. And we want to be able to come to God and say, God, I did a good job with my children. This is why I tell people, our children need to see us reading the Bible. They need to see us praying. They need to see us sharing in devotion time with our kids and saying, Here's what God says about this situation. When our kids come up and ask us, you know, what, what do you think about this? We don't tell them what we think. We take them right to what God says and say, this is what God says about this. You're thinking about getting married? Let me tell you what God says about marriage. He says, one man, one woman for life and death, until death do you part. And not, no, no affairs, no, no divorce, except in the case of adultery. And that you stay together. And that 
and we teach them what God says about things. And then it's up to them to obey or not obey, but we're going to teach them what God says. And then, of course, we have to live that way. We have to live in a way that shows them that we're, we're sticking with our wife. We're sticking with, with, our, with our spouse. We're sticking with lifting God up in the home. And as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. And I love Joshua, Joshua when he's saying that. I've made my decision. You choose who you're going to be, whether it's the gods on this side of the Jordan or our God. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that is what we need to be able to do. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's not a question. Who's going to lead my children? Who's going to give them advice? Who's going to give them godly advice? I am going to be the one that does that. Now, I'm hoping as they're, now that they're adults and stuff that they go to a good godly church and they've got a pastor teaching them as well. But when they call me looking for advice, we're going to give godly advice because we have chosen to honor God. And that's what they're going to get, that they're going to honor God. And we will lift it up in the church and we will say, as for this church, we're going to serve the Lord. When, the, when churches are compromising and not believing the Bible, we in this church, as long as I'm pastor, are going to believe God's word. We're going to serve God. We're going to move forward with God. We're going to say his word is true and every man's a liar, no matter if every church out there says that God's word is not true. And I know that will never happen. But even if it did, we will say God's word is true and we're going to follow it because this is what we're standing on. And it is important that we make this stance. This is God's word. It's true. I'm going to believe it. Even when it makes no sense, I'm still going to believe it because God will show me why, why it's true. And very important for us to get to that point. And I've shared with you over and over, and I got this at an early age when, when Dr. McGee would say, we're, we're, we're McGee and the Bible disagree. The Bible's correct. And he goes, I'll go figure out why the Bible's correct, but the Bible's correct. If I don't agree with it, the Bible's correct. Mm -hmm. And we need that stance. I don't, may not understand it. I don't know why it is, but the Bible is true. And God is true, and every man is a liar when, there's, when we think there's a contradiction. Because when we start trying to fit the two together, we will end up with all kinds of problems because God's word is true and man is not. And this is why we come up with people not believing the beginning, the creation, because in the 1850s they came out with evolution and the church did not stand on the word of God and they tried to put the two together and came out with a whole bunch of weird belief systems. And why? Because they didn't believe the word of God and say, well, science is saying this, but God says seven days, we're going to believe seven days. And it's very important. When God says he took down the walls of Jericho, we need to believe he took down the walls of Jericho. When it says he destroyed the Sodom and Gomorrah, we need to understand he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. When there was a worldwide flood that maybe we don't understand how it is, God made a worldwide flood. And we need to be able to just say, this is what it's all about. Those, those who don't want to believe in a worldwide flood also don't believe that Noah built a great big boat because he wouldn't have needed to. All he had to do was move, to the, move someplace where the flood wasn't going on. Uh, go to a higher mountain. You know, it's, you know, he wouldn't have needed a, an ark for a local flood. So we look at this and saying, if we don't believe the whole story, it all of a sudden very quickly starts falling apart. And this is why if... Adam and Eve aren't created by God and, and didn't sin, and that is why, that's why sin and death, uh, death and disease happened, then Jesus didn't need to die on the cross because there was no sin for him to die for, because there, sin didn't cause death. So we have all these things. If you don't believe the beginning, there's no reason for Jesus. And I guarantee those who are in evolution understand that principle because it's all through their writing. They'll say, there's, you know, evolution disproves that death came from sin, so therefore there is no need for a savior and there's no need for any of the Bible. And they fully understand what Christians do not understand. The Christians who don't want to begin with the basis that the Bible is true all the way from the very first words don't understand the ramifications deeper on that if it's false, then why would we have to believe in Jesus? Why would he have to die if sin didn't bring death? then there's all the rest of the stories are a waste. And if you read the evolutionist side of arguments, they very clearly understand 
we're going to destroy this, this creation stuff because then we don't have to worry about a God. Because all the rest of the, the Christian's Bible is false. And they understand that. And it's a sad thing that Christians don't understand it, who claim to stand on his word. And they don't understand that if you destroy the beginning, the rest of it falls apart. And I keep, I'm going to keep hammering on that this whole time when we're doing the foundation series. We're going to hammer on. These are true because they must be true for the rest of the Bible to be needed. Because if they're not true, none of the rest of the Bible is, is of any validity. Jesus died for nothing. And if he died for nothing, he probably wasn't the son of God. Because he wasn't needed to be the son of God. You know, and you see how the, the whole thing falls apart. If the first part is a lie, the rest of the story falls apart. And when people tell me, well, I can be a Christian without believing that. Yes, you can be a Christian. You can somehow believe that Jesus died for your sins and you need him to be your savior. I don't know why you need him to be your savior if you're not going to believe the beginning. But they can do that. And, but I think they're going to be a very weak Christian because they're not going to believe. They don't, they're going to be picking and choosing what they want to believe in the scriptures. And I've said over and over, if it's, if it's not all true, we're betting our eternity on this book. We're betting eternity that this book is true. If it's not true, I want to know now because I'm going to quit following it. But in 44 years, I've not found anything that tells me that it's not true. And so I know that it's true, and I can bet eternity on it because I know it is true. And I, and I have been able to have faith that it is true. And my faith has is, is been backed up by logic and examination and, and looking at it close. And God's word is able to handle close scrutiny by honest skeptics. If they're an honest skeptic that will take the Bible for what it says and go forward with it, they will come to the conclusion that it is true. Many, many, many have done this. It's not like most of the books that the deeper you look into it, the more problems you find with the book. It is one that has cohesion and, and accuracy and extreme accuracy that is in the scriptures. And we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you that you go forward with us and help us to share the gospel. Help us to live a life that lifts you up. And when people look at us, they get to see a glimpse of you in, in, in the way that we live. And we just thank you for that. And give us strength. And in Jesus' name, amen.